Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I have put my daughter on the spot. She's going to come up and draw during the sermon today. You're not, you shouldn't be too excited because uh, this is not her drawing. <laughs> I've asked her to draw something um, that I, I could have drawn. So, but you can, you can throw some embellishment in there. You can make it your own and make it good and stuff. So maybe start about here down. All right. We're in the book of Mark. And there was a man named Marcion. And Marcion wrote in a 144 A.D., and Marcion, he, uh, he was pronounced a heretic by the early church. Marcion believed that Jesus was the Savior sent by God, and that Paul the Apostle was his chief apostle. And you would think, wow, okay, I agree with that, that sounds good. But he rejected the Hebrew Bible and the God of Israel. Marcionists believed that the wrathful Hebrew God was a separate and lower entity than the all-forgiving God of the New Testament. Now, Marcion had a canon, had, a, had scriptures. Uh, he decided which books were biblical, which books were scripture, and which weren't. And his Bible consisted of 11 books. That'd make reading it in a year a lot easier, wouldn't it? And his 11 books, they had a gospel that was consisting of 10 sections that also appeared in the gospel of Luke. He liked the gospel of Luke. And then he had 10 of Paul's letters in his book of the Bible. He left out the entire Old Testament. And he left out all the other epistles. He left out the gospels of our Bible. He thought that they transmitted Jewish ideas. Now, it's interesting because one Cambridge professor said that Marcionism, even though it was condemned by Tertullian in 200 AD and other church fathers early on, this Cambridge professor said Marcionism has won the day in the modern church. That many folks who come to church today, that many people who follow Jesus Christ, for the most part, have adopted a Marcion view of the Old Testament. That the Old Testament God was mean and vengeful and wrathful and a little crazy. But we like Jesus. I don't get this whole Old Testament thing, but I sure like the New Testament. And the reason I bring this up when we're studying the book of Mark is because Mark was the first narrative, the first book that included a narrative story in it that was written following the close of the Old Testament. It was the first book of the New Testament. It was the first book that told the story of Jesus. And the way that Mark structures his gospel, and by the way, do you believe that the scriptures were inspired by God? 
Do you believe that the Bible, the Scriptures, that God gave them to us, that He inspired their writing? And if you attest to that, if you believe that, then you'd have to say that you believe that God inspired the structure of them as well. And when you start to unpack the way that Mark is structured, you start to go, wow, God's really smart. And the reason you do that, the reason you would see it this way, is because it tells this grand narrative from Genesis. You see, Mark's themes begin clear back in Genesis. And they continue throughout the Old Testament. And the way that Mark has structured his story in his gospel is he's continuing it as the continuation of the story of God that began in, Mar- in Genesis. Now, since we're all good Jewish scholars here, because you've been going to church for God knows how long, and God knows how long, Since you've been going to church, and obviously you have been just versed in the Old Testament because that's what you do at church. You get versed in the scriptures, and two-thirds of it is the Old Testament. We know how the story goes, right? We know how the story goes. And if, if you're not sure, let me refresh your memory. You see, the reason this is important is because Mark picks up these themes in his gospel. And the interesting thing is, we aren't Jews. We don't have their worldview. We don't have their mindset. Many of you grew up in Ray. I grew up in Denver. I don't share your mindset, those of you who grew up in Ray. Even though it was just three hours west, I still don't believe every Smith is related to each other. I still don't believe every buck is related to each other. I believe that they don't know each other. Why? Because all the Smiths I knew didn't know each other. All the wine coops I knew in Denver didn't know each other. Did you know that there's a Steve and Margot wine coop in Denver, Colorado? And when Marnie and I were first married, we would get calls for Steve and Margot Winecoop, and they would get calls for Steve and Marnie Winecoop. Steve and Margot Winecoop, no relation, don't even know for exactly where in Denver they lived, but he was much older than I, and we were not related. My worldview is very different than the worldview of people who grew up in Ray. And that's a, that is a minute difference compared to somebody who grew up in ancient Israel 2,000 years ago with certain dreams and hopes and nationalistic expectations than those shared by us. Now, we're in election year this year, and perhaps you've been paying attention to the debates, perhaps you've been paying attention to uh, the, the recent primaries, maybe you're planning to vote in the upcoming primary. Isn't it Super Tuesday here soon? In March, some of you are going to participate in that, I I suppose. And there is a narrative that is shaping our election. There is a narrative that is shaping our election. And I don't even have to go into what that narrative is. Because if you pay any attention, if you've grown up in America, if you live here, you know that narrative. Because it's just, it's just, 
in you. You don't know how you know it, but you know it. Now take those ideas and realize that that's how an ancient Israelite functioned. There there was a narrative that if they were to have elections, would have shaped their election, would have shaped their discussion, would have shaped who should have been in charge of their world, who should have been in charge of their nation, who every Israelite would vote in. And they just knew it because it was a shared history with one another. Now, for a refresher, what is that shared history that they had? Well, they started out at the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve. And they followed the advice of a bad entity, the serpent. In Hebrew, the Nakesh, this fallen divine figure, the spiritual being of some sort that led them astray. They followed and listened to this entity. And because they followed and listened to this entity and they ate of the fruit of the tree that they shouldn't have eaten, God drove them out of Eden, which was him driving them out of his presence. Then they moved east to the land of Nod. Some of you know that land well. You visit it every Sunday morning. (laughs) Besides, we're out on the eastern plains of Colorado. They moved east. The next major thing that happens in the scriptures is the Tower of Babel, which is in modern-day Babylon, east of Eden. The people there continue to not listen to God. They rebel against God, and God disperses them, and He gives them different languages. And they are driven further out of God's presence, and God gives them over to his, their nations, to other gods. They come under the rule and reign of Satan. And their whole story is about them returning to God's presence. So Abraham is called out of the land of Ur, out of Babylon, and he starts to return west to the land of Canaan, returning to God's presence. And he's there in Canaan for a spell, and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then Jacob and his sons go down to Egypt And they are put into bondage in Egypt. And then you come to the Exodus. In Exodus, they leave the land of Egypt and they start heading back into God's presence, into the land of Canaan. They are delivered out of Egypt. In Exodus 23, God says that if you will follow me, if you will be faithful to me, if you will not follow any other God, then my angel will go before you and my angel will drive out your enemies and destroy them and he will give to you the land of Canaan. And then Exodus 23 gives these blessings and cursings. If you do what I say and follow me, if you don't follow other gods, then I will bless you. Your crops will succeed. They will be abundant. In fact, you will still be eating from year five's harvest in year eight. Now, that was quite the feat before, you know, GPS tractors came along. Before modern fertilizers. Before Roundup. God was giving these promises that your crops will not fail, that there will not be disease and pestilence and locusts. In fact, he went so far and said, I will drive 
wild animals out of your land. He said, I will bless you. But he also gave curses in Exodus 23. He said, if you follow the other gods, if you leave me, if you depart from following me, then I will curse your land. Well, if you've read the Old Testament, you know what they chose. They followed other gods. They went astray. They quit following Yahweh. And some of them even practiced child sacrifice, burning their children to the god Molech in the valley of Gehenna, which is the word that Jesus used to describe hell. They turned their backs on Yahweh, and God lived up to his curses. One of the curses that I didn't mention was, you will be driven, in fact, it's a stronger word, you will be vomited out of the land. The people were vomited out of the land. First, it happened to the northern kingdom, Israel. They were defeated, and those people were dispersed throughout the world. The lost ten tribes of Israel, nobody knows where they went. They were just dispersed around the world. And then there were two tribes in the south, in Judah. And the Babylonians came and they defeated them and drug them into captivity in Babylon. And it was during their captivity in Babylon that a man named Isaiah, a prophet, wrote prophecies. And if you know how the flow, the argument, the story of Isaiah goes, in Isaiah chapter 40 through, verse, through chapter 55, Isaiah starts to describe what's called the new exodus. And he starts to tell the exiles, you will return. And he starts out by saying what Mark said at the beginning of his gospel that we looked at last week. It says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. You see, Isaiah 40 verse 3 says that Yahweh is coming. Yahweh is coming. He's going to put things right. You're going to come out of Exodus. You're going to come out of, excuse me, exile, out of Babylon. You're going to be returned. And if you read Isaiah 40 through 55, there's all these promises that the nations will come to Israel and all this loot and bounty will be Israel's and all this blessing and promise and their crops will never fail and the wild animals will be driven out and everything they do will succeed. Nehemiah and Ezra, they return to Jerusalem. And many thought this is the fulfillment of Isaiah 40, but then you get a prophet Malachi. You see, Mark also quotes Malachi. It says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. He's quoting Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. And if you read the book of Malachi, you find that Malachi is written 150 years after the people have returned to Jerusalem from exile in Babylon, and the people are mad. People are frustrated. We thought we were returning. We thought you were going to bless us. We thought that everything was going to go right, but our crops keep failing. There's wild animals that devour our young. Our enemies 
continue to have the upper hand. And there's no monarchy. What's going on, God? Can the, can the promises of Yahweh be trusted is, is kind of the backdrop of the book of Malachi. The people are frustrated. And Malachi's answer is this. If God visited you, he'd have to destroy you. Why would he destroy you? Because you're unfaithful. You're following other gods. You're still under the curse. You're still not being faithful to Yahweh. And Mark, this is the backdrop of his gospel. This is the backdrop of his narrative that he writes for us. And if you know all of that backdrop, this book will make so much more sense to you. It'll answer so many questions as to what is going on in this book. Now, Bailey has drawn an overview of the book of Mark for you. So if you are a good sketcher, you could sketch this out quickly. If you have a smartphone, you could take a picture of it afterwards. This is just a quick outline of the book of Mark in a pictorial way. And I thought that this would be handy for us to see. Because one of the things that happens in church world and in preaching is is that we kind of just grunt our way through the scriptures. And we don't have the bigger picture. We kind of get so stuck looking at, okay, what does the word and mean here? What does it mean? You know, and I mean, that's kind of fun. It's kind of interesting, especially for a language geek like me kind of interesting. And all these things, by the way, are inspired by God and the structure is inspired by God. So there's some really cool, interesting things in here. In fact, if you just grab your Bible really quickly, let's read some of the cool things that are in here. Mark chapter one, the verses will be on the screen. Chapter one, verse 12. Listen to the word of God. The spirit immediately, remember Mark loves this word immediately. He's an American. He had a microwave. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, drove Jesus out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. Isn't that a weird sentence, wild animals? You know, this is one of those you can get lost for the forest because of the tree kind of word. Let me just comment on this really quickly. Many scholars think that this was written to Christians, the church in Rome, who were under persecution. Most likely from a Jewish background, because they would have understand this whole background that I just gave you. This whole story. And when it says wild animals, you see, Mark knew that many of them were being fed to the wild animals in the Colosseum. This is during Nero's persecution. And Mark, as I said last week, most likely records Peter's memories about Jesus. And we know, according to church tradition, that Peter died at the hands of Nero. He's crucified upside down, according to church tradition. And Mark, maybe, I think he throws in, Jesus was amongst wild animals and God took care of him. Is kind of what he's saying here. Kind of like a, a little aside, a little encouragement to Christians who are being tossed to wild animals to die. You know, Jesus was amongst wild animals and God took care of him. If you get thrown to wild animals, God will take care of you. Maybe that's what's going on. Kind of fun to think about. Why else is wild animals in there? I don't know. And the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, uh uh-oh, 
Why would he throw that in? After John was arrested. You see, one of the themes in Malachi chapter 3 is this. You better be prepared for when Yahweh returns to his temple. And this can go one of two ways, Israel. You can reject God again, or you can shape up and repent. And Malachi goes on and he says, I'm coming to my temple and I'm going to take care of the priesthood. I'm going to take care of the religious leaders who are leading Israel astray. Now, do you hear some of, if you've read Mark, these are some of the themes you'll see in Mark. Jesus doesn't have a problem with tax collectors and sinners. His problem is with religious authorities, just like Malachi. He gets rowdiest when he goes to the temple, just like Malachi's God. And it says that John was arrested. Israel is rejecting this message. Israel's leaders are rejecting Yahweh's message. This should also give you a little bit of foreboding. Because if you're going to align yourself with Jesus, if you're going to align yourself with Jesus' message, it could come with a price. Excuse me. It will come with a price. If you haven't paid a price to follow Jesus, you may not be following Jesus. If that stung, tough darts, get over it. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum. And immediately, don't you love how Mark just immediately, 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 and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. What's going on? What's Mark trying to say here? What's he doing? He doesn't spend much time on Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. We have the other Gospels to fill in some of the details there. All we know is Jesus overcame Satan in the wilderness. And then he shows back up in Galilee. The wilderness, remember, is not a nice forested area like what we think of. It's the desert. And Jesus was there for 40 days. 
And Jesus comes out of the desert and he comes back to Galilee and he starts to proclaim the kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. And then he starts to call followers, disciples. The word disciple in the gospel of Mark is used more than the word immediately. The word disciple is used 47 times. And it shows up right at the beginning. Jesus' first action is to proclaim the gospel and to call disciples. You can bet that discipleship and disciples following Jesus is one of the key themes in the book of Mark. And then right after that, proclaim the kingdom, call disciples, and then we have an exorcism. And you may be shocked to learn this. This is the very first exorcism that is recorded in the Bible. If Mark's gospel is the earliest written gospel, which I believe it is, this is the very first time it's ever recorded in human history that somebody cast a demon, an unclean spirit out of someone. What's going on? What's Jesus doing? Well, let's visit Bailey's picture. If you can't see, I guess you can get up and walk around. A couple of quick things. The first part of this book is Jesus doing healings. Sorry, I'm going to mess up Bailey's picture. Healings and exorcisms. Mark's word for this is mighty deeds. In fact, I'd encourage you not to use the word miracle because Mark doesn't use it. He uses the word mighty deed. The word miracle means that it transcends the natural order. But mighty deed is about agency. Who did it? And Jesus is this mighty deed authoritative agent. So you can think about this as chapter 1 through about 8. Oh, that's terrible. 8.26 is the mighty deeds of Jesus. And then you get this strange story. If you've ever read the book of Mark, you read this weird story about this healing where Jesus seems to have a low battery. This guy who is blind and Jesus touches him, and he says, can you see? And the guy's like, I see, but I see people who look like trees. And you're kind of like, does Jesus not have the goods today? What's going on? What's wrong with Jesus? And you get this healing that's a two-touch healing. It's the only two-touch healing in the Gospels. And if you believe that the Bible is inspired by God, then you must believe that the structure is inspired by God. And you must believe, what is going on? Does Jesus lack the goods this day? Is it an off day? He's not feeling well. What's wrong with Jesus? And I think what's going on is Mark is trying to tell us something, that there's this strange little two-touch healing of this blind man. And it goes into what's called the way section of Mark. And it's like Jesus is going to start this journey to Jerusalem along this way leading the blind. And the way section is, is framed by two healings of blind people. Did, God, did Jesus just heal two blind people in his whole ministry? No. 
So why does Mark just tell us about two healings of blind people? And why does he put them in these places? I think Mark's trying to tell us something. I think God's trying to tell us something through this. I think what you see here is that all along the way, his disciples are blind. They don't understand. And three times along the way, Jesus says, the son of man, me, the Messiah must die. And on the third day rise. And along those times, you see one of the times where Peter says, never Jesus. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And you see time and time again that the blind ones are Jesus' disciples. They don't get it. And Jesus has this whole long way with them, trying to heal them of their blindness, their misunderstandings of him. And then you get this this healing of this other blind man. And then you get this weird story where Jesus is hungry and he goes to a fig tree. And it's not the season for figs. So that's not a good time to go check for a fig. It's kind of illogical, Jesus. It's like, you know, going out to a cornfield when the corn's about knee high and getting mad that there's no corn there. And you think, my goodness, is, it, is Jesus like a middle schooler that he's, he's throwing a tantrum over no figs when it's not the season for figs? And in that story, he curses the fig tree. Curse be you, knee-high corn, because there's no corn on you. Well, of course there's not, dummy. You don't know the season for corn. Would Jesus know when there would be figs on a fig tree? Why is he cursing a fig tree? He curses the fig tree. Then he goes to the temple. He gets a little rowdy. He kind of gets in arguments with some religious leaders. And then the next day, the disciples go, Hey, that fig tree you cursed, it totally withered and died. Wow. What's Jesus doing? If you know the background to the book Malachi, you know that he's pronouncing a curse, a judgment on Israel. He's saying, You rejected me. Your leaders rejected me. We're going to have to go a different way with this whole thing. It's not good. The story ends with Jesus' ultimate rejection by the leaders. He's crucified, he dies. And then. He rises from the dead. But even there, Mark's ending is so unsatisfactory that two different times in history, scribes, somebody else, added a better ending. You ever been to a movie and you were really upset with how it ended? You thought, oh, that was terrible. They should have totally ended that a different way. Should have been happy and, you know, all have a big dance number where everybody comes out and, yay, we're all friends and everything's going well. In fact, just for fun, let's read real quick. These words won't be on your screen unless Joyce works some magic really quickly. Mark 16. The shorter ending of Mark, because there's a shorter ending, a middle ending, and then a longer ending. And if this is freaking you out, somebody messed with your Bible, don't worry. This is the shorter ending. When the Sabbath was passed, this is just Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, 
Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. (laughs) So matter of fact. And they were alarmed. Really? And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Most believe that that is the ending of the Gospel of Mark. Isn't that super unsatisfactory? Now you can see why somebody added the other parts like, uh, you know, And those signs will accompany those who believe in my name, that they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. (laughs) I mean, that's way, yeah, that's awesome. That's a way, that's a good way to end it. I would add that ending. I mean, that's like superhero type of ending. But to have a bunch of gals who are afraid and they just run away trembling, what's Mark telling us in his weird book? Or at least, Weird to us. Following Jesus is going to cost you. Following Jesus will cost you. It is in Mark's gospel that we will come to a passage where we read, if anyone would follow me, he must take up his cross, deny himself. When Jesus called those first disciples, did you see how they reacted? They got out of the boat. They dropped their nets. They left their family. Some of you haven't even been able to do that yet. Growing up in Ray all your life. Why? Because family's powerful. And in that ancient culture, it was more powerful than families today. And what Jesus was calling these men to was deviant behavior. Reject your family and follow me. Reject the family business, follow me. Make your mom and dad fend for themselves and follow me. The application is simple today. Has it cost you anything to follow Christ? Has it cost you anything to follow Jesus Christ? If it hasn't, maybe you're not following him. What we're going to see, and especially as we get into the way section of Mark, is that to follow Jesus will cost you everything. It will cost you dearly. And I wouldn't be surprised if less people come next week. Because the cost will prove to be too great for some. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of Mark. We thank you how it just ties together so many themes that we see throughout your dealings with Israel. We thank you that you have started this new exodus, that you yourself visited Israel, visited our world, 
And that through your death, there is victory for us. And we pray, Father, that we, each of us, would count the cost and we would follow Jesus Christ. We thank you for those disciples that responded to your call. And Lord, we thank you for the warnings of the disciples or those who are called to discipleship in Mark, but did not follow your call. May we question which we are. Holy Spirit, make it so. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Follow Christ no matter what. It's worth it. Amen.